Hello everybody, this is a quick intro before the intro for this episode of the Mild Mannered Army podcast, just to say that there is some explicit content in this episode, some bad language, whatever that might mean, sweary words, uh, and also a discussion of some issues that some people may find triggering, including conversations around violence and drug abuse. So if you're listening in the car, maybe not one for younger children, and if any of these things are problematic for you, best to skip this episode. Okay. Let's go on with things. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Mild Mannered Army podcast with me, Paul Laird. And what an episode this promises to be. The very best books are the ones that say something to you about your life, even if, as is the case more often than not, those lives are very different. Graham Armstrong has written his debut novel, The Young Team, based around his own experiences growing up in the gang culture that, even today, dictates the lives of many young men across Scotland and in particular across the west of the country. It's a tale of violence, alcohol, drugs and hopelessness which simultaneously manages to be about family, love, the highs of friendship and finding yourself. His life was, in more ways than one, very different to mine and yet the book touched me, made me think and gave me hope. So I'm delighted now to have the chance to speak with Graham. Hello Graham. Thank you very much for having me Paul. Yeah, no, not at all, not at all. The, the, the pleasure and the privilege is, is all mine. But I, I wonder, Graham, if it might be a, a good idea at the start just by defining some of the terms that come up in the book mm-hmm. for people who might be listening to this in America or even in England. So if I give you some words, yeah. can you maybe try and offer a, a definition? Yeah, absolutely. Go for it. Right. OK, let's start with the obvious one. Team. What's a Team. A, a young team is um, is basically a gang, and that's it's actually the the suffix on the end. Normally, we would say the area name, and then young team. So it would be Airdrie Young Team or Coatbridge Young Team. Yeah, so that that's what that is. And Toy is exactly the same. Fleeto, Agro, any of these names that we hear are like the end part of a real young team. Well, that that's interesting that you bring that up straight away, Graham, because. My background is that my, my mum came from Glasgow, my dad from Edinburgh, and they were both mods in the 60s. Yeah. And my mum in particular, you know, would have had experience to some of those names that you mentioned. You know, there's really famous gang names like the Fleet and the Tongs. Yeah. And there were squads and there was the Derry. And mm-hmm. quite often the use of that word mad would get thrown in there. You know, so in yeah. Edinburgh, we had the Young Mental Dry Law or whatever it might have been. Young um, Skits with Arby is a good one. That's a cracker, yeah. And then there's that there's that great famous bit of graffiti, right, from the seventies in Glasgow. Uh, welcome to Tongland. I yeah. knew I was gonna say that. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so teams a gang. Um and people might think that I should know some of these things, but there is of course a real difference in, in Scots language across the country. So yeah. um what about a scheme runner? What's a scheme runner? A scheme runner? See, to be honest with you, that is something that I, I coined, right? Scheme, oh, yes. Just The scheme is basically our area, you know, so a scheme is just an area. Anytime you say scheme, it just means area, right? Um, and scheme runner is, is just a, an absolute uh, carry-on later on when Wee Kenzie says to his big bra, leave running the scheme to me, and he says, fucking run the scheme, you couldn't fucking run a raffle. <laughs> and he says, and then so he's calling him it, just saying, oh, we've got the fucking scheme runner here. So that that's all it is. That's that's not part of our part. I just made that up. Well, <laughs> <laughs> right. I wonder if this is another one that you've made up. Then the next one that I drew in the book when I was sitting making notes, and it's it's used as an insult in the book. I, I'm I'm fairly sure it's Azzy that says it to somebody at some point before there's going to be a a, a fight. 
and he describes somebody as a bunnet. Now, for most people in Scotland, a bunnet's just a hat. <laughs> it's uh, it's your bell in, mate. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, that 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 must be either a generational thing or peculiar to the west coast of Scotland. I've never you heard know what, that. Do you know what? See, when we were seeing like small towns, right? We almost have our own gravitational pull, eh, Pata. You know, like. We said stuff and things for the Coat Bridge ones, and, you know, Airdrie and Coat Bridge are two sides of the same dirty penny, do you know what I mean? But we had our own week in our slang words, and they did as well, and Glasgow, they're like, you speak different out there, and it's it's like, you're in quite closed subcultures, do you know what I mean, when it comes to language? Uh, and then the final one that I pulled up is one that I think is used across Scotland. I mean, I'm, I'm fairly confident it comes from the West again, but everybody uses this. But for people down south, and again, international people who listen to the podcast, a square go. A square go is just a fight. Uh, that, that's it's pure and simple, just a fight. Um, usually, if you said sort of square go, it would have connotations of 1v1, you know? Yeah, that, that's that's how I would interpret it. Yeah, square go is not kind of group gang violence, right? No, square no, go no. is me, me and you going toe-to-toe. Yeah, toe-to-toe, absolutely. Okay, so hopefully that will help people who, who pick up the, the book, a glossary. <laughs> oh, I, I don't know. <laughs> the, the use of language in the book is really important, obviously, Graham, because, you know, a, a bit like, I mean, we can go right back to something like Clockwork Orange, you know, with, with, yeah. with, um, with the use of its very own language. or in, speak. Yeah, and you speak in, in 1984. And interestingly, one, one of the reviews of the book was by uh, Jude Cook in The Guardian. And Jude had loved it. And I've spoken to Jude about the book. And... He felt that he had to go through a similar process in terms of accessing the story, which was to get to grips with the rhythm and the the use of language in the book. How how important was it for you to write in that voice? It was absolutely fundamental, Paul, honestly, because, see, um, when I started writing it, it was the most purest um, rendering of the dialect it was pure what I would almost say is like MSN speak which is the social media we used at the time you know and it was like absolutely unfiltered and unpenetrable actually and it was Janice Galloway the, the famous author and memoirist that gave me the advice I'm going to tell you what I told Evan Welsh you need to cut back the dialect you know and when she said that to me I thought fuck you I better listen you know this is going to be good advice so I, I did, I don't, I wouldn't say I sanitised that. I'm very cautious not to use that language or that, um, you know, I, I just adapted it for to be. She basically said, be more James Kelman than Irvin Welsh when it comes to dialect, you know. So I, I, um, I made it slightly more accessible, if you want to say that, but it's still very, very true to life. And when I read it, you know, I don't need to modify the way I speak at all. It's just absolutely in my accent. I get that feeling from reading it. I've now read it a couple of times, and, and that's definitely the feeling that comes across. I, obviously, there are being Scottish. There were things that are written in, I, mean, I guess, for want of a better phrase, ordinary English, right? Mm. Um, but at no point did I have any other sense than I was in Airdrie, right? That that's where I was, and and the language and the use of language and the rhythm of it all really gives that feeling of it being authentic. Um, and I, yeah, that was one of the things that I really loved about the book was that voice. And it's interesting because I, I did not have the same reaction to you've mentioned it now. I wasn't going to, but to train spotting. And I think yeah. the lazy comparison is to talk about train spotting and young team in very similar terms. I don't see it. People naturally make that comparison because I'm very vocal about Trainspotting being my inspiration to study English. Um, but, you know, 
people say I read that review online which is always um it's never recommended you know someone said Irvin Welsh is safe you know this is not Irvin Welsh you know I was never trying to imitate Irvin Welsh um or pay homage to train spotting you know I, I did that by studying English and, and turning life around but the young team was my story from my area and my voice you know so it's, it's succinct yeah no I mean I, I, I think that it, I mean, when I read that particular review, the thing that I thought was, this is somebody who maybe actually hasn't read the book, you know, because <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I, yeah. I don't see how you could read the book and come away from it feeling anything other than it's its own thing, it's its own creature, it yeah, exists in its own universe. You know, that specific reviewer who we won't name and shame, he, called, he compared it to a Western, you know, and I think... You know, I've never read a book that takes mental, male mental health in the 21st century at point blank range. You know, it deals with genuine emotions and like romantic relationships. I was thinking it's not really a Western, is it? Listen, sometimes people have made their mind up before they even open the cover, you know. So on the, on the whole, the reviews and, and response to the community has been absolutely fantastic. And I'm very, very grateful. You know, it's been incredible. That's justified, to be honest with you, Graham. Look, I, I wonder if we can maybe, before we get too much into the the book itself, because there's some things that I'd like to maybe ask you about specifically to do with mm. the, the book itself. Here's a question. That I, now, I'm not trying to suggest that you should have answers to these questions, but one of the things that... that obviously forms a big part of the book is gang culture right yeah and you know we've we've kind of laughed about it with these gang names and what have you but gang, cu- gang culture is a, a a serious issue i mean across the uk as a whole i, mean, yeah, I guess absolutely. across the world but but particularly for people who haven't read the book at, at various points as we move through s- separate sections you're drawing on real research on newspaper articles to show the reality of the things that you're you're raising yeah. And so I wonder if you had any thoughts on what it is that draws young men, what it was that drew you maybe um, mm-hmm. into gang culture. And then a second question, if you can think about it, Graham, and that is what can stop that draw? What drew me in? What drew me into gang culture was my friends um, and their big brothers. You know, I've, I've told this story loads of times and it's starting to sound like a broken record. But one of my friends basically said, have you heard of the young team? And I said, what's that? A football team? You know, and I, and I had never heard of any gangs in our area. I wasn't aware of them. You know, and joining the gang for me was basically hanging about with older ones who were then drinking. And then we had a name. You know, we, we were the young team. We were the going Mavis young team. So that gave you like, you know, a significance, a cause. And then obviously it was guys you'd hung around with, but now you were under this banner of a gang. So, you know, you were, you did what was expected. You know, you fought and drank, etc. It is a very primal thing, like safety in numbers, because when you come from your little, especially from a village where I'm from, you come from quite a closed community. And then you go into a big school, you know, where there is poverty, you know, where there is people who have trauma in their lives. And, you know, that that transmits has been extremely violent, you know, and they're not easy to get along with. The schools that I went to, Yardrick Academy and Coatbridge High, were, were really bad for violence, mate. You know, there was lots of poverty. So, and then there was these competing gangs. And Yardrick and Coatbridge were very different amphitheatres of gang culture. Coatbridge was complete partisanism they did not speak to each other it was open warfare they hated one another with uh, it was pathological hatred whereas in Airdrie it was more like packed Darwinism I've called it so all the top guys hung around together all the smokers hung around together you know and it was still really violent but it was different so that that was my experience of getting into gangs um and and I was expelled from high school so I went to Coatbridge and experienced that and uh, I joined another gang down there which was expected of you pretty much 
and uh, experienced both sides of the coin. But how can you stop that? It's an old question because realistically, we talk about things like drugs and violence and gangs, but when you actually change the narrative and you think, why why do these things exist? Oftentimes it's because of poverty, it's because of trauma. You know, as I said recently, no one walks out their, their front door, you know, a happy 11 or 12 year old and goes straight to taking heroin, you know, or that, you know, or the other coin, it's a girl, she walks straight out her door and becomes a prostitute. You know, there's a cycle and the cycle is generally speaking poverty, which becomes trauma, you know, from neglect, abuse, from violence, from, you know, whatever. And then that manifests itself in our behaviours, you know, it reprograms us as human beings and that, that manifests in gang culture. Um, back to that really tribal thing that we see in these communities that I think, you know, that's a perfect, you know, it's a perfect storm, so to speak. Mary Hepburn, who's a, a doctor who works in Glasgow with uh, vulnerable women, women from impoverished communities and a lot of women who are involved in uh, sex work. And yeah. Harry Burns, the former chief medical officer in yeah, Scotland. Very famous. You know, yeah, well, Harry Burns, the, the, the thing just when you were talking, the thing that leapt out of me that, that, that I was reminded of was, Harry Burns' basic question was, for people who, who don't know Graham, was, well, look, how is it that we can have two guys, here's Graham and here's Paul, and they both come from Scotland, and they've both got similar family backgrounds, and they're both the same age, and they both smoke 20 Benson and Hedges, and they both have, you know, a couple of bottles of beer during the week, and yet Paul's going to die at 55, and Graham's going to live to 72. What, what is the thing? And, of course, what he found was that the impact of poverty, even before you get to school, has predetermined, you know, brain size, your ability to access resources, all of it. And yeah. I, so I think you're right. I, th I think poverty is the underlying thing. And then the question becomes, well, how do we deal with that? It's not quite just as simple as that, right? And I tried to include a spectrum of backgrounds in my gang because, you know, I wouldn't say I came from a poverty background. I came from a good family, you know, and I was well raised. Um, so, you know, what, why was it me? Well, if when we talk about trauma awareness and ACE culture, which is adverse childhood experience, mm. my father died when I was a wee boy, you know, so I, I think that did reprogram me, you know, that I was always slightly cheekier in school, I was always slightly more prone to violence, and then I was more prone to alcohol and drug addiction later on, you know, so I think it's too simplistic a view to just say this is a poverty problem. You know, there's violence and drugs out with the, the worst communities as well. It's the actual fringes that we deal with as well. So, But but generally speaking, if we are talking in, in terms of absolutely poverty is the main driver, you know, but there are other um, social phenomena. You know, my, my, my real life, Graham, is in secondary education. And I find myself occasionally slipping into the mistake. You know, you'll have a kid who's obviously involved in gangs, Although gang culture in Edinburgh is very different than it is in the rest of the country. It's not really gang culture here. But, you know, they're involved in gangs. They're involved in, for want of a better phrase, bad behaviour. Yeah. And, you know, I, I, I will find myself, despite being aware of some of the things you're talking about, will still find myself saying, I just don't understand this. This kid's got a mum and dad at home and they're both working. I don't know why they're behaving like this. And you're absolutely right. There are a variety of adverse childhood experiences or traumas that, can lead people to, uh, you know, seek solace or seek comfort or find an identity. Um, yeah. You know, if, if we if we go to, you know, an Ericksonian view of things, maybe it's yeah. just about trying to find an identity. And it's, I think, uh, you know, we we um, when you get into this, we need, you know, lots of the trauma awareness stuff. I I totally support it, and I think it is absolutely valid for ninety percent. But see, those are ten percent. Some people are just bad, mate. Some people just yeah. want to do it because they just choose to do it. 
you know. And people used to say to me often, as a kind of absolution of guilt, you know, and say, Graham, you just get in with the wrong crowd, son. And I say, and I rebuttal that immediately, and I say, I was one of the wrong crowd. You know, I, I don't blame my friends for what I did. I was probably one of the worst out of all my friends. You know, and I had a great, I had a great childhood, a great family. So I chose, I made choices. You know, and I'm not saying the death of my father wasn't a driver. I'm sure it was, but I'm not, I'm not guiltless. You know, I'm not blameless and all this. And it's important to acknowledge that. Well, I, th- I think that's the only place that, that that real growth can come from, right? Is if we accept our own, if we accept our own role in these things. Well, look, I wonder, as long as you've got time, Graham, I'd, I'd like to maybe go to a couple of sections in the book and maybe mm-hmm. get your thoughts on these things. So um, quite early on in the book, there's a, I mean, it, it's not funny, but there is a big fight that takes place in the school, right? So in the grounds of the school, there's yeah. been sort of escalating violence involving the central character of Azzy and his pals, their gang and the toy, this other gang uh, from, from nearby, and it's culminated in this this big fight in the in the playground and it ends up with, with people getting very seriously hurt including Nazi of course who gets this bad sort of wound to his arm from a, a, a blade yeah. and there's a there's a bit in the book um just shortly after that where um as he's describing this and he says this he says everyone's on msm bragging about what injuries they have and didn't they have who they had battered who's going to get it as a result of last night it'd been a full-blown gang fight but despite every cunt's tales of battles, they're actually quite rare. You were yep. much more likely to get caught or sneaked and done on of a few cunts when you were on your own. Waves of paranoia about revenge and getting done in or splashed, keep whipping me. And then there's this two sentences at the end of that section, Graham, which I think are really interesting. I'm sitting trying to ignore it and summon the boldness inside. I didn't really feel that bold the day. Now, for me, that's the first point in the book where I think run away Azzy run away just right yeah. now now's the time now's the time right he, he, he's sitting there he's trying to make sense of this whole thing he's trying to summon up a boldness that he doesn't actually feel and I was just begging him to get out at that point but of course he, oh, he can't no 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 way uh, what, you, you know oh, sorry on you go I'm just thinking well, I, yeah no no you go Graham uh, do you know what I had loads of opportunities to stop, you know, and um, getting expelled from school was a big one, mate. Like, lots of people say, oh, I get chucked at school, but what they actually probably did was hung around after fourth year and then get asked to leave because they were fifth year. I actually <laughs> got physically, I got physically expelled. Like, and that's, that's really serious because it flags you with early intervention, it flags you with social work, you're out of actual mainstream education, so you need to go to the authority, you need to have an interview. You need to have an interview with like council officials sort of thing and the education board, then you need to be reassigned a new school. Like it's a massive, massive deal. Do you know what I mean? And um, absolutely parallel to that, you know, I was taken down to the police station, I was charged with assault because it was a, a violent incident in school, you know, yeah. so it was quite serious, mate. And you know, if that was a big one, do you know what I mean? Like my family were distraught about that. You know, I was I was leaving out like my my other sibling and that school, and then I had to go to a new, a new school in a new town, and that was probably my moment to stop. But there was no way, you know, I was getting off the the roller coaster. I just felt like the top of the what they looked for me, mate. You know, maybe the first well, look they looked. Is there is there maybe something there, Graham, about and I guess as he's hinting at it there, right? Is that actually the 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 adrenaline rush of all of this? And the kudos that comes with it, right? Because as he is very slowly becoming 
this kind of face, right? He's becoming one of the top guys in the young yeah. team. And I guess that's a difficult thing to turn your back on, right? Do you know what? See, for me, I, I, I'm not really a natural adrenaline junkie, um, but I I don't know what the, the main seduction of it. Well, I mean, I probably the, the loyalty and the belonging, you know. I, I would still say I'm loyal to lots of these people who I was in gangs with, you know. That was my main pull. That kind of thing that I'm evoking, right? And I think as he is, like, obviously he's a guide narrator, you know, he's a wee bit more like, obviously he's got potential that maybe he's come, you know, his companions don't have. And he is more reflective, you know, and, and bits like that. I always remember before fights and stuff like that, like, you had that fear, right? And then it was over, do you know what I mean? And then the after, it was never over, but, you know, because then it was like, his big cousin's going to get you or this is going to happen. Or, you know, now you were a sonar pulse on somebody else's radar, and they were determined to have you on the side of their fucking fuselage, you know, you know what I mean? Yeah. Um. So it was this constant, you know, nothing, nothing was ever simple. If there was a fight or there was aggro with someone else, it would transform and it would mutate, you know, and, and grow arms and legs. So it was like a constant fear, mate. You were living in like living under a shadow, a constant threat of violence. You know, the violence, thankfully, was um was usually quick and you usually scraped through, but it was like if. The, the worry before the, the you know the anxiousness and paranoia after was it was a full time fucking job. <laughs> you know, it felt that way. I mean, one one of my mates remarked, he said, "This was like a fucking Vietnam," and, and I laughed when he said that. By the way, because I, I thought that was really funny. But I, on later reflection, I was thinking, Do you know, he's he's not that far wrong. Well, I I found myself as I was reading it thinking or feeling an incredible sense of paranoia and anxiety after each one of these bursts of violence. And although a lot of people have made, you know, great play out of the book having violence in it, actually those those moments of violence are spread out pretty thin across the book. And when they come, they're like a magnesium flash. But what's more troubling is not the violence, but is the build-up to the violence and then the aftermath. And I found myself feeling really, like, like that was weighing heavy on me. I was waiting for what seemed to be the inevitable next burst. Yeah. And that, that must have been exhausting to live and like you that. know, I think the, the, the reality, right, of realism is the before and after. And my focal point in a lot of this book is actually the before and after. Like the rave, the rave, you know, do you know the first rave scene almost never made it? They'd said, mm, I'm not sure about that because yeah. it doesn't actually spend much time in the rave. And I went, I know, but the focus is the before. It was the fucking build-up. It was the emotion. And it's the same with the fights. Like, see, that's, I call it the brother-in-arms chat shite. And that's exactly what it was. Like, see, after a fight, it would all be like, oh, that was fucking brilliant, mate. You're one of the boys. You're fucking young team. You know what I mean? And it would go on for ages. But then you'd be sitting at home alone with all the trips and eating our dinner, and you'd be thinking, fuck, I'm going to get leathered for that. You know, and it, that that's realism. That's real violence. Like, that's, it isn't Hollywood. Do you know what I mean? You need to go home and eat your dinner with your mum, and you need to go to school the next day, and you think, fuck, I'm going to get leathered outside school, and it's going to be a scene. Do you know what I mean? That's that's the reality. See that then, Graham. Does that go some way explaining the use of alcohol and drugs? I think the use of alcohol and drugs was absolutely mindless at the time, mate. I don't think it was. I don't. I don't think it was this kind of rebus style. Like I'm going to blot things out, you know. For us, it was more just a case. Of I'm going to get fucking mad with it. Do you know what I mean? Like we chased it. We were chasing the buzz. It's almost like a separate energy, you know. And the violence was almost like a. You know, when they say recreational violence, I, I don't think I really went out to, you know, I didn't walk in on a Friday night thinking, yes, I'm going to fight. And lots of people did, but I didn't. I was just like, yes, I'm going to get fucked up and I'm going to chase birds. You know, and if I need to fight, then I need to fight. You know, and I think that was more the reality where I was from. That we didn't have a, this gang 
conflict as such. You know, it was a case of always watch her back, you know, but until I went to Coat Bridge, then they actually had conflict, mate, you know what I mean? They were like, you know, in school, I was kind of pals with everybody because I was from a different town. Everybody was kind of like, you're the new kid, you're cool, what hang about with us? And then they were like, you can't hang about with them if you hang about with us, you know? And it just so happened that I joined practically the most hated gang in Coat Bridge because they were the biggest, you know? So... <laughs> But that was that was an experience, you know. So it's actually a blend of both kind of my experiences in both towns. One of the things that, that comes across that ties in with what you're saying there about the when you're in the village, that, that lack of real kind of conflict between the gangs is the fact that throughout the book, there's Rangers and Celtic fans who have these very kind of close familial relationships almost, right? You know, there's Rangers guys and Celtic guys in the same team. And that kind of flies in the face of the public perception of these things. Yeah. I wonder if you could say something about that. No, it's, uh, the young teams were absolutely impervious to sectarian divide, to be honest with you. It was, you know, we had, we come from a 90% Protestant area, to be, to be honest, so it wasn't that we had many of the opposite, but quite often, i seen, you know, John Carnockin, who was the one of the head cops who started violence reduction, one yeah. of the London VRU people said, John, but it was different up there, you know, you had the whole sectarian thing, because he's obviously seen documentaries about football, or he's, he knows about Rangers and Celtic, and John <laughs> rebuttaled him immediately and said, you know, that's it, you know, there was no sectarianism in gangs, and he, even when I went down to Lang Loan, which, by the way, was the other way, it was 90% Catholic, in fact, 95 or 98% Catholic, I was one of only four Protestants out of about 100 youths. You know, see when they wore me, see me wearing a Rangers top, their mouths fucking hung open. They had never seen that before. They could not believe their eyes. They could not believe it. They were speechless. And, you know, I was like a novelty Protestant for them. So it was, you know, we, we used to get in this, this pub called The Shark's Mouth. It was affectionately called The Shark Gub. And it was like a fucking IRA bar, you know what I mean? It was like proper, you know, they'd never seen a Rangers top in there. And one of them, one of the young team was like tucking my top in my trousers, do you know what I mean, when I was walking in? That, so it was that kind of relationship, you know, it didn't matter. It was a purely loyalty brotherhood, you know, of, of gang members. You know, at the end, because I had them basically both sitting in Ulster and in, in Irish flags, you know, I thought that was quite a striking image that actually our brotherhood, the gangs, is more, you know, it's it's stronger than 300 years of religious conflict in Northern Ireland, you know, so that was like an iconic moment for me. There was another thing that that really leapt out at me as well, Graham. I'm just going to find it here. Hold on. It's page 100. Oh, yeah, it was the, the, the chapter on uh, gentle sins. Mm. Um, a tender moment. I found it a really moving chapter in the in the, in the book, you know, involving Azzy, and there's a couple of girls who are involved in this, and, you know, the way that he describes the girls is so tender. And, and I mean, at the risk of sounding, you know, overly sentimental, it's a rare moment of real romance in the book. I, do you know what? I think the, um, you know, the whole culture, you know, it, what am I trying to say? It, it kind of hides the reality, you know. Like, I know loads of guys who were head over fucking heels and love the lassies, do you know what I mean? And they treated them right. It wasn't like, you know, um, you know, drawing on, like, American gang culture, and you know, they call women bitches and all that, and it's all like, this, you know, it's this really kind of derogatory language they use, you know, and... We didn't do that, do you know what I mean? Like, our lassies were like, some of them are fucking madder than the guys, to be quite honest with you. 
you know, and they were valued <laughs> members of the young team, do you know what I mean? And if they back you up, to be honest with you, some of them, you would be glad. But they were the whole, they, you know, when the girls were there, it was a different energy. And obviously, you were trying to show off to them because some of them are really, really good looking. So, you know, it was a completely different experience. And uh, I, I fell in love really young that way. And, you know, I was going to a, like a 16-year-old girl when I was 14. It was a disaster. But we were very much in love at the time, you know, it was my first love. So it was drawn on, drawn on stuff like that, you know. There was genuine emotion, even though we were real gang members. So I mean, that's one of the things that I really enjoyed about the book was the relationships between Azzy and some of the girls, you know, and Monica and Patricia in particular. You know, and, and those those things came across as being very real. You know, they, they, they didn't seem like you were writing those experiences. They did seem very... I think they were were drawn from, you know, absolutely chasing the bad girls. And I think, like, when you've got a reputation, you're in gangs, there's girls that are the kind of, you know, the opposite of you. You know, they're not, like, the best fighters. They're, like, the bad bitches, if you want to call it that. You know, not use that uh, derogatory language about the females, but you know what I mean, like, the bad girls and they're, you know, really pretty, but a bit edgy, you know? And they like the, the guys that are the best fighters or the top dogs. So Patricia's very much one of them, but Monica's like, what, what did I say? She's like the gold, you know, she's the different lassie, the odd one, the shy one. It's like the good, you know, the lassie you, you should be with. You know, that that's, I was trying to evoke that. You managed it really well, Graham. It's, it, it, these things, like I said, I mean, they, they seem so authentic. Something that was really important for me reading through the book was, despite the fact that it's, what, 40, 50 years after m- my dad's experience of, you know, running about and having square goes and tear-ups and all yeah. the rest of it, was the, there was a particular part in the book where I was reminded of my dad. So ju- just at the risk of boring anybody who's listening, or indeed even boring you. But, Nonsense, mate. On you go. Well, m- what happened was that my dad was involved in violence, blah, blah, blah. He started taking up karate. He got very good at karate. Um, actually ended up fighting for Scotland. You know, was a second dan, all that kind of stuff. But around about that same time, he joined uh, a particular religious group. He joined the Mormon church, right? Yeah. And so that, for my dad, was a way out of this life that was in danger of overtaking him, right? He he could very easily have become one of the other characters in, in, in the book, right? He could have become another casualty. And he's always told me that what he had to do was he had to leave Edinburgh. And so he left Edinburgh and <laughs> bizarrely moved us to Whitburn, right? But that's a long story in of itself. <laughs> but <laughs> interestingly, though, in the book, there's a, a, a bit here. Um, so on page 194, as he's been hanging out with his pal Danny, and he says this. His pattern about being a mad dealer has calmed today. Much as I want to be a good mate, the fact remains that sometimes you have to put distance between those who would get you in too deep or take you to places you don't want to go to. The place Danny is heading is significantly worse than where I'm prepared to follow. Yeah. As the day wears on, I hear the extent of his dealings. And, you know, Graham, when I read that, I felt like I was inside my dad's head in 1970, 1971, right? I, I could hear him having exactly that same conversation with himself and, and understanding that actually one of the only ways to escape some of these things is to escape. Mm-hmm. Like, see serious and organised crime I mean gangsters are big drug dealers right? they don't recruit for the Boy Scouts or the Boys Brigade they recruit for young teams like you graduate for being a wee rascal 
into a violent young man, into a gang member, into somebody who sells drugs, who works for our people selling drugs, and then you become, you know, you know, become of that world. And Danny is very much getting embroiled with these people. And by the way, I knew lots of people who were getting involved with that sort of stuff. You know, and some of the people they knew were scary people, you know, and I've seen fear. And I was thinking, fuck that, you know, I don't want any part of that, you know, and I never had a part of that. And when, you know, nobody go into any specificities, um, you know, but they were a kind of nasty drive into Liverpool and things like that, you know, without saying any more, you know, that says enough. Yeah, yeah. That's that's you getting into a world of, you know, a world of, of pain and, and serious and organised crime that really you don't want to be any part of, and you're creating obligation. You know, and I try and exp- explore that later on in the book where you get into a position with these guys that sometimes you just can't say no. You know, and the, the chapter name was called Favours, Debts and Faust. And I think it is like a Faust impact when you get in with these folks, do you know what I mean? Because you cannot, these are not the people you just say, nah, mate, no point anymore. You know, they tell you and you jump. Uh, and that's a scary world. Yeah, it's terrifying. Um, it is terrifying. But then, as he, of course, finds a way to escape as well, right? And so for my dad... It's joining the Mormon church and just, yep. you know, he's out. And for Azzy, he gets given this kind of, you know, a door is opened when Patricia says to him, look, I'm going to Newcastle. My auntie's moving in with her boyfriend or whatever it is. And, you know, she's got a flat in Gateshead. We can go and stay there. And he I, takes that opportunity. It's by no means a perfect escape, you know, and, and I think Azzy knows that, you know, and I almost create that contrast that, see, I, um, I don't want to spoil anything, but, you know, at a certain point in the book when they're in a toilet together and she's taking cocaine and he's drug-free, you know, that he knows that she's not perfect. He knows that it's not a great idea. He actually compares it to the Pied Piper and, and he's one of the enchanted Wayne's following her, you know. Um, but he just like, you know what, fuck it, it's, it's something. And I think, you know what, like, see if you're get away, doesn't he turn out to be that great? Just go anyway, go, because see the experience of going somewhere, removing yourself from your current surroundings, that's a powerful experience. You know, you might not get it right the first, second or third time, but you know what, eventually that energy of moving, you'll you'll find somewhere in someone who's home, you know, and I think that's that's the best you can hope for if you're in a lot of shit in your own town. Sadly though, or maybe not sadly, as he has to come back to, to the town after yeah. he's been away for a, a period of time, and one of the things that really struck me at that point, like it's difficult to talk about this without giving away yeah, spoilers, yeah, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. But he comes back and almost instantly he's back in it. Yeah. Almost instantly. Things that you would think would have faded over time, right? Like, you know, I mean, nobody's free of sin, right? We've all done things to people in our past that, you know, we would rather we hadn't done. And most people move on with their lives. But as he comes back and it's as if somebody's just hit pause on the DVD. And the yeah. moment he sets foot back in town, play is hit, and we're off and running again. Let, How... me, read you, let me read you something, right, that will just yeah. absolutely personify what you've just said there. Right, this is after he's come back. It's, it's in the first moments of that, you know, he says, he's, uh, he's just met up with his pals, and he says, isn't it just air that changes up here? I can feel it already in the back of my mind. That fucking irrational aggression towards strangers and your own attitude changing for the worse. You can blame it on these streets all they want, but it's in you. Part of your complicated psyche feels the violence and what's in your back. It's the persona you force yourself to adopt up here. It's everything for the cause you wear, to the length of your hair, the way you speak, and the fucked up thoughts running through your brain. Like it or no, there would always be that residual energy here. That thing that washes over you as soon as you're back in your own area. 
it's that wee voice in the back of your head talking to you in your own accent, egging you on and taunting you, telling you you've become a pussy or a coin. And the only way to redeem yourself is to drink a bottle of wine and smash some cunt. You know, is that not just what you were talking about, mate? That's, you know, and, and you know what? That is something that I dealt with for a long time. You know, I felt that way. I felt like, you know, my mate in uni, right? He was my best mate, but he was also in gangs. He was stabbed in a, a gang fight in Glasgow. He was from that background. And he said, mate, do you know when I realised I'd led a violent life? When I looked at every single guy and thought, can I hit him? Can I batter him? And you know what? That was the first time I'd ever considered that wasn't going to be normal behaviour. You know, but that's the way we thought. Because that's we came from somewhere where you had to watch our back, where violence was ingrained, didn't you? You know, and then here we were in a middle class space with no threat to anybody. You know, none of these guys were going to try and hit us. You know, no, I'm not saying there was any fisticuffs in uni, the union after a few too many, but they weren't going to do anything with us. You know, but we were conditioned. Absolutely, man. Well, that there is a scene in the book about exactly that, right? Where as he goes into Glasgow with Monica, this other girl that crops up time and again in his life, and he's hanging out with <laughs> with Monica's uni friends, and mm. everybody's really nice, everybody's totally sound, apart from two of the guys. And as his thought process at that point is really interesting, I don't know if I've <laughs> that's in the fundamental difference between us, isn't it? That's in that, that is, chapter. That is, yeah. Page um, I two two seven eight. As he's made a real effort, he's nowhere in these blue mirror Berghouse Parker. No. <laughs> <laughs> do you know? Do you know what that I really was proud of, right? See the bit when she's like, "Do you want to come out with me?" Right? And he's like, "Oh, what mates?" Right? Because we, I think we were always a bit paranoid, man. We were always like, "Who's going to be there?" Do you know what I mean? Like, who's going? To, you wanted to control or like all the things. Where are we going? Who's going to be there? Am I going to get into trouble here? And am I going to feel like I don't belong or I'm, I stand out? You know. And as she asks a question, right, and he goes into this whole long speech in his head, you know, and this is during the conversation, you know, but, and he says, you know, I think it's a really poignant bit, and I actually felt that in my own life, right, because I was mixing with girls that were my gang experienced and guys, and I felt like, you know, what as he actually says is, I don't want to sit with strangers who are going to judge me and feign a mild interest in my daft wee college course. I can't really talk on their level yet. I'm not stupid. I've got opinions and all that. I know about politics and other topics they polite conversation, but my opinion's like a trained monkey to these cunts. Frankenstein's creature, an eloquent mutant, a hybrid specimen, working class with a brain and an accent that guarantees he's split forever. Now, how sad is that? You know what all she's done is she said, do you want to go for a, a beer? <laughs> He has to jump through all these hoops in his head just just that's, to even accept the invitation. That is, because that's and you know we go through universes and and blank, you know lights we in our heads and all our trauma and all our prejudice and you know our whole lives flash before our eyes sometimes when you get asked something and you you know and he goes like I of course I'll go because he's just embarrassed to say no I don't really I don't really feel like I belong maybe it'd be nicer if it was just me and you or whatever but I don't know like belonging is an important thing and when you're thrust into a world of uni like. My ex, right, I was always pally with her, but she ended up going for Coatbridge to St Andrews uni, and, ask, and I used to go up and hang around with sometimes and just, like, go for a couple of beers and whatever, and sometimes I'd take, like, a bottle of Buckfast up. But then I was mixing I was mixing with people that basically thought I was a fucking scumbag, do you know what I mean? And they were like, oh, what university do you go to, do you know what I mean? And I was like, well, Sterling, do you know what I mean? I'm in, like, my third or fourth year studying English. And then they were like, all right, you know what I mean? And I was like, oh, my God. 
like I'm proud to go to Stirling. I'm I feel so privileged and blessed to be at uni. You know, and I didn't always act that way, but I was like, I don't know, I just felt like I didn't belong up there, you know. When you say that about people asking, you know, what uni are you going to, there's a great bit at the end of that um, chapter about the fundamental differences between us. So basically the lead into this bit is basically um, the, the two guys that are part of this uni group have started getting a bit cheeky, like Monica, they call her Mon, and their mate Dominic <laughs> used to go with her, and they're like, Dom and Mon are great, you know what I mean? And as he's like, fuck views, you know what I mean? <laughs> And basically, it's just the three guys at this point, they've started getting a bit cheeky at Azzy, you know, and basically he goes, oh, so fucking wet. And then when he goes, so fucking wet, Craig repeats in an exaggerated, nerdy voice, a common insult. Slag away I speak, make a social assumption and judge me. Judge my family, my prospects, my financial status, my intelligence. But you know what they say about assumptions? But the night, I just laugh. And light a cigarette and turn and walk out the lassies and say our goodbyes. I smile and put my arm around Monica Mason and walk towards the taxis at the end of the street. You know, and that's a great moment, by the way. That's the first rejection of violence in the last part of the young team. You know, that's when it, that's as he laying the foundations for what's to come. It's a huge moment for him and a huge moment for me, you know, in reaching that when we think, you know what, I, I could punch fuck it, both of you, but I'm not going to. <laughs> You know, because all you are, all you two are, is a couple of guys that think or something. I've like we were young team veterans by this point. We had, I had I counted them since these violence as I was in. It was sixteen, right? Everything for a punch there. Sixteen. God, I wasn't scared. You know what I mean? So it was like, but then you and I hope the whole thing about the boldness inside, it's like keep the boldness inside. You don't need to prove it. Just just know. Just no one's enough sometimes. It's, that, that's the whole class but see people like that they're much smarter than we are they would never lift their hands to you but they would encourage you to do it do you know what I mean and then my mate I remember him saying it and it's you that's the arsehole and that is exactly what it is you know it is you that's the arsehole because you've spoiled the night you've done this so I don't know I think that was always a constant people like that I think knew your background they knew you were different and they wanted to push you and see if they could get a rise out of you it's like Gatsby god so the last scene in Gatsby, you know, the hotel scene in Gatsby, that's exactly that's right. what Tom Buchanan does to Gatsby because he's got the breeding to know he can push Gatsby to his limit, but Gatsby doesn't have the breeding, so he's going to lose it and react, and that's exactly what it is. It's a timeless tale of fucking class, you know what I mean? Well, that that then takes me to the, the last thing that, that I wanted to talk about, and there's a, there's a chapter, I mean, almost at the, the, the very end of the book called The Philosophical Difference Between Running and Walking. Mm. And I loved it. I absolutely loved it. But again, we, we can't really talk about it because it's so close to the, the, the conclusion of the book. No, but no. The very last sentence in that chapter, I think, just captures exactly what we've just been talking about, about those feelings of, you know, people trying to get a rise out of you, using the class system against you. Do you want to read it again? It was the very last sentence on page 373. I had been at war, but my war wasn't against the toy but myself. That's yeah. it. Yeah, that's it. That. I think the whole philosophical difference between walking and running, you know, it's walking away, mate. You know, walking away and running away is two different things completely. And, you know, I sat with that for a long time and one of my friends, she had asked me right at the beginning when I started, she said, what's the end? And I said, right, the young team in the fucking toy ones have a massive square going up. I mean, the young team win. And she went, see, if you do that, everything you stand for is for nothing. And I sat with that, do you know what? And I tortured myself with that and I thought, do you know what? I can't have that. 
it needs to be a different ending. It needs to defy. Because actually, without giving anything away, the ending you expect isn't the ending you get. Would you say that's fair? I would say that's absolutely correct, yeah. You know, and that was so important for me. And and even my publisher said, this is a bit risky, by the way. And I went, I know. I said, but honestly, it's it's everything I stand for. It's what, I'm, it's what I truly believe in my heart. You know what I mean? And I feel like after everything I've been through, the gangs and all that, and try to get this book published, I said it's absolutely the ending that, that my generation deserves, you know? And it's it's a it's a comment on modern masculinity, you know? So I, I think you should be proud of that. You know, the, the, the world doesn't need any more Green Street movies or any more Danny Dyer gangster movies, right? Or any more of these sort of um, representations of male violence and male mental health. And I think the, the thing that really comes out of the book, and particularly out of the, the way that you ended the book, and again, we can't say too much, was A, that it felt real, and B, it would have been a cliché to end it with that big fight. It would have been a cliché and it would have been unsatisfying. Yeah, and I think at the end, even to the dying words of this book, we see kinks in armour, and that's what the young team's all about. It's about kinks in male armour. The armour is just bullshit. Actually, the romantic relationships, the mental health, the bad experiences on drugs, the fear of violence... Of not only of violence enacted upon you, but violence you enact upon others, that is modern masculinity, you know. And I think that is my greatest triumph for the young team. It defies expectation in that way, you know. And, and I, I want to tell young guys that I actually see these hard these hard shells we put up. They they cost lives. They cost our lives. They cost other people's lives. They waste lives, you know. See, when you're an old guy, you're going to look back and think, do you know what, I was a fucking hard man. And you're going to look back and say, do you know what, see, I say, I actually loved her, but I lost her because I was an arsehole. I've seen those good pals I could have had, I lost them because I was an arsehole, because I was too busy getting full of drinking drugs and acting like a ticket, which just is meaningless rubbish, you know. It's trying to go for much, you know, see when it, when he talks about a philosophy, I think that was my philosophy. You know, I was sitting, I, I spent seven and a half years with this book, and believe me, in that time, there's a lot of time to think. You know, a guy up in shots, um, HMP shots, said to me, and this guy was doing 20, a life stretch, and he said, how long did it take you to write that book, me, man? And I went, seven. And he went, you've done a seven stretch, you're one, isn't it? And I went, oh, <laughs> mate, thanks for saying that. I said, that's, that's really big, you say that. And uh, do you know what? I was thinking about what he said there, and I went, do you know what? That was my sentence, young team. It was a sentence, but I'm, I'm very glad I got to the end. My huge, sincere thanks to Graham for finding the time to speak to me about his book, The Young Team. It's available now on Picador, and I really can't encourage you enough to pick up a copy and read it. I found the whole thing engrossing, challenging, uplifting, disturbing. One of the best books I've read in a very, very long time.